It is my privilege to welcome our first speaker, Reverend Michael Foster. He is the senior pastor of East River Church in Batavia, Ohio. He is the co-author of It's Good to Be a Man, a handbook for godly masculinity. He has served as a youth pastor, church planter, and associate pastor. He studied history at NKU and graduated from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Emily, have seven kids. And I understand, apparently this was new information to us, he has been accused and indicted in various places for possession and intent to distribute red pills. So, it is an honor that we can hear him while he remains a free man. Please welcome Pastor Michael Foster. Good evening. Our text tonight is short. It's a single verse. It's Proverbs 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we turn to your word for us, may the spirit of you rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. In, it's in the name of your son we pray, amen. We're gonna come back to our verse in a second, but first, my task is to answer the question of how to find a spouse, and to do it in two meager sessions. I'll do what I can, it's not an easy task, especially since the question is uh, more like how to find a spouse in the age where marriage is derided, fornication is widespread and normalized, and the absence or the, or the absence or abdicating fathers are common. That's the situation, that's the age that we actually live in, and that's our time. But if you're here, that means that uh, you're facing down that difficult task, either yourself or seeking to do it for your, your own children. Uh, so I'm down to do what I can to try to make it a little less challenging for you. And what I'm gonna talk about in this first session is the landscape you must navigate as you try to find a spouse. But first, I'll tell you my own story. I met my wife at a Bible study in uh, 1998, which didn't used to seem like a long time ago, but it is. I was watching some stupid little TikTok video that came up on YouTube, and it was this kid talking about, it was a video of a 2000 graduation class, and they're walking from their rooms in a public high school, and the kid was like, look how happy they were back then. Life was so easy in 2000. <laughs> and uh, it was super bizarre to hear kids say that. Like, that's not how we thought about it. But, um, Anyway, I taught that a Bible study, met my wife there. I had been a Christian for about a year, and she had converted from Roman Catholicism. I grew up pagan. Uh, we were both still in high school. I was a senior, and she was a freshman. Uh, we do not recall the first time we met. We know we met several times before we took interest in another, so it was not love at first sight. Uh, and in retrospect, we weren't each other's types. So I told my wife that before, but she told me that the other night, and it made me mad. <laughs> I was like, have I been doing that to you for the last couple of years? I'll stop. Um, <clears throat> but there was a night that I became enamored with her. Uh, she had, again, just became a Christian and was going to a, uh, a local Catholic school and was becoming much more expressive in her faith. And her friends were starting to reject her and persecute her for being serious. And she came to the Bible study uh, that night, uh, we had been out playing soccer, and I had been wearing, um, 
been wearing contacts and all that grass got up in my eyes. So I had to take them out. My eyes were like blood red. It looked like I should have been smoking dope. And, uh, but uh, I couldn't see anything, right? I couldn't see what she looked like. And here's this girl pouring her heart out at Bible study, just uh, how much she loved Jesus and how she was trying to be faithful in her prayer. And I'm not a super spiritual person, but at that moment, I just knew that was the one I wanted, right? And it, I had not been like that at all. Uh, there had never been an inner ro- romantic for me. When I would, I'd always break up with girls during, high sc- or during wrestling season because I wanted to win. <laughs> so I was like, sorry, it's not you, it's, it's wrestling. Uh, that's who I'm married to. But, uh, um, but that night, man, uh, she, there was something about her that caught my eye. It was the sincerity of her faith intertwined with, uh, once I put my glasses on, her natural beauty. And I did not know for a while that she felt the same way, but she did. Uh, we became fast friends that night, and we wrote each other sub- several uh, letters uh, every week for months. I-, I read some of them in preparation for this. They were incredibly embarrassing. I don't know what to do with them, because the idea that they're going to be handed down to like my grandkids, and they're going to read them at some point is, is terrifying. <laughs> but it seems wrong to burn them. I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds right now. Anyhow, um, it was silly stuff, and uh, we, were, we really were still kind of kids at the time. Um, I eventually confided in her that I was interested in her uh, as more than a friend and wanted to get to know her and, and her family, and, and I'd like vice versa, right? But I did give her one uh, condition. I had been reading all these uh, missionaries at the time, Hudson, Taylor, George Mueller, all that, so I was like in a real intense phase. Um, and I told her that I knew I was called to the ministry, and I wanted to do mission work, and I especially wanted to plant churches. And I would likely be hated uh, by many on account of, of preaching God's word. Uh, I probably would be away from home a lot ministering. And I also would probably not make a lot of money. And I remember telling her, if that's not uh, a sort of life you could imagine yourself being part of, then let's just stay friends uh, because I want to be married to someone uh, who uh, happily supported that and wanted to help me in that work. And um, I thought that was going to be the end of the relationship right there. I really did. Uh, but that made her swoon, right? Um, she uh, she leaned, leaned in for a kiss, but I had been reading Joshua Harris, so I didn't do that. Um, I, you know, I like, I ducked it. And I had really good, my bob and weaving skills, and I gave her, you know, that awkward, like, side hug thing. Um, but uh, it was a good night, though. And so... After a few dates, I talked to her father, and he uh, blessed the relationship and gave us some ground rules. And not long after that, I introduced her to my own parents, and we dated all through high school, and we were married a year after she graduated. Um, When we were married, I had never, ever in my entire life seen internet pornography. I'd only seen minutes, like a couple minutes, of of explicit images. Uh, Neither of us had any social media. It, it, it didn't really exist yet. Like, there was like chat rooms, uh, but we didn't get on there. I had just gotten a cell phone and a computer for the first time a few months before we married. So I didn't get a cell phone or a computer till I was 23 years old. Uh, so that was uh, different. My wife, when we married, uh, was a virgin. Our parents were involved in very degrees in a relationship, uh, especially Emily's father, even though we weren't from Christian households, really. Um, uh, her father was a good Catholic 
but more, uh, more of kind of empty tradition, but nonetheless a good moral man in a, in a, a sort of base sense. Uh, we were in an evangelical church at the time at Calvary Chapel. It wasn't like explicitly patriarchal or anything like that, but they did believe in pro-male headship, at least in the way they functioned. Um, they were really pro-children. The pastor had four kids, which was kind of a lot in a lot of the churches I'd been at that time. And his wife was a homekeeper and very positive about it. So that was like a very early um, influence for us. This other church we used to visit, the pastor up there at the time had 11 kids and now he's up to 13 or 14. And so the idea of fruitfulness being good was an early part of our Christian discipleship. So to review, the internet played no role in our relationship. Uh, We married young, Emily was 19 and uh, me just a few years older. Uh, We had little to no fornication in our past. We had the support of our local church and the general approval of our parents. And that sort of relationship, sadly, is just not common today, almost unheard of. Um, And the reason I bring this all up is uh, a lot of times when we talk about dating and marriage, it's almost all anecdotal. It's people's own stories. And those stories are helpful and instructive uh, but they also can be very contextual to a time and, and a situation. When we think about these things, we need to try to get to the heart of, of principles that we can apply wherever God has us. You know, we're all in very different uh, situations. Not everyone, you know, even in a Reformed church, would have had the sort of support that we had in our little dinky evangelical Calvary Chapel, but we did. Uh, so I don't think my relationship is the prototypical model. I don't think it's the pattern that everyone should and even can follow. Matter of fact, I think a lot of bad advice comes through the anecdotal relationship wisdom of older couples who haven't factored in just how much the relational landscape has changed. And it has changed massively. Like, we are undergoing a cultural change that is on par or greater with the Industrial Revolution. It is a wild time to be alive. What's been going on the last... 50 years, 40 years, is, is really uh, historical. And I think a good metaphor, it's kind of a negative metaphor, but a good metaphor is uh, uh, tsunamis. Uh, tsunamis are giant waves caused by, I'm noticing I'm louder. Should I move this thing up? Is this loud enough for me here? Yeah? Okay, all right. Um, tsunamis are great waves caused by earthquakes or uh, volcanic eruptions under, under the ocean. And the waves, as they approach landfall, get, they get larger and larger. Uh, the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, uh, which is what got me involved in social media online, I started a blogger account to link to all the videos because I was just blown away by the power of it. I, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, its waves got, in places, 100 feet in height. And at times, it moved as fast as 500 miles per hour. That wave's moving as quick as a jet in the sky. And when it hit the land, it actually pushed in several miles. Uh, the Indonesian province of Achai was hit by a series of waves, three to be exact, the first one being like 49, then the 98, and then something that's like 40 again. It, these waves hit it, and each wave destroyed structures as they moved inland, but it also destroyed and reshaped everything as the waters receded back out into the ocean. That's the part that people forget, is not only does the water come in, it's got to go back out. When it goes back out, it carries things with it. I had a wonderful vacation planned for me and my family. Uh, I've been looking forward to it this entire year. Got on Airbnb, <laughs> reserved it. I'm going to go back to where I did, uh, uh, where we had our honeymoon. 
and show my kids the whole spot. And then Hurricane Ian destroyed Sanibel Island, and I'm not going to go there anymore. But it's amazing. The whole beach is gone. Like, it's, it looks like a totally different island. Like, it's just the erosion pulled that away. And if I was brought there, right, and not knowing that happened, I'd say, this isn't Sanibel. This looks nothing like Sanibel, right? The landscape can be and is forever changed by the eroding power of water. And that is exactly what's been going on for the last 150 years, right? We can trace some of the major uh, corruption in our country back, certainly the Second Great Awakening, but in the last 150 years, we've had several waves of feminism. There's been the sexual revolution. There's been the legalization of no-fault divorce. Uh, there is the creation of hormonal birth control. Both of those happened in 69 and 70. There's been the legalization of abortion. Thankfully, Roe uh, v. Wade's been uh, undermined, but we still have to root it out state by state, and that fight's not over. Um, a lot of that stuff happened in the 60s and 70s, but it didn't really have widespread, uh, widespread effect into the 80s and the 90s. That's where it started to catch up. Uh, then in the 90s and 2000s, we were hit by repeated waves of technological advancement and change. I mean, high-speed internet changed everything. I can remember the first time watching the Hindenburg blow up on, on the internet. It was like this little stamp picture, right? And the guy's screaming, oh, the humanity. And I was like amazed by it. And that's, that's nothing. We have like little, little toys with that sort of uh, videos on it. Personal cell phones with cameras on them became common. Having a camera phone was a big deal. When I dated my wife, uh, she had a pager, you know, like drug dealers used to have. Uh, <laughs> so I used to pager, and if she didn't respond like in two hours, it's like, what is wrong, you know? Now, if I, if I text her, she doesn't respond in like five minutes. Like, are you okay? That's <laughs> just how things have changed. Um, in time, the internet gave birth to social media. Probably the first real social media was AIM. It was America Online. That's probably where that really started. Uh, then there was a creation down the line of smartphones and apps. I think 2007 is a pretty important year in our society. Uh, that's where the iPhone was uh, first released. I believe that's right. Um, but there had been smartphones before that. That's where it was a really desired thing, and it started to spread. Uh, and even how we use apps has changed everything. Uh, when I was a kid, now I'm sounding like an old man, when I was a kid, uh, you used to have like 100, 100, 200 numbers in your head, right? You used to know everyone's number. I can't remember anything, or I'm doing good to remember my own uh, phone number. And so technology uh, always has trade-offs. Right, good, bad, there's unforeseen um, uh, changes that you could never plan. A good book to read on this that I think is massively uh, misunderstood is uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by um, Postman. It's a good book. It's a good, and then Sherry Turkle has followed it up with some really good things as well. I think she's a little doomsday, but I don't know. We'll, you might think that about me by the end of this. We'll figure out. Um, so maybe because it is, and she's influenced me. I don't know. Um, but some of these things are, some of the changes with technology were good, neutral, some bad, and some downright ugly, right? Um, it, I, it's hard now to keep your, your kids from stumbling into something explicit and disgusting online just by like honest mistakes, you know? And the landscape, it has changed massively. 
So let me bring this back to Proverbs 18.22 for a moment. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So this, this, there's at least three things implied here. First, finding a high-quality spouse is a blessing, right? Charles Bridges, he wrote a good commentary on Proverbs. He says, this is obviously to be taken with limitation. Manoah found a good thing in his wife. Job did not. Some find a crown to their heads, others rottenness to their bones. That which alone deserves the name is indeed a good thing. And if in the state of innocence it was not good for man to be alone, much more in a world of care and trouble, two are better than one for mutual support, helpfulness, and sympathy. The good thing implies godliness and suitable fitness. So this isn't just saying that marriage in of itself to anyone is good. It's the marriage of a, of a godly, quality, skilled, wise spouse, wife in, here in particular. Second, there is an aspect of searching implied in he who finds. And that especially comes out if you compare it to Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife, who can find, right? It's a question. Who can find this woman? Where is she at? A lot of you guys are saying that, right? Where is she at? Um, well, you're not the first one to ask that question. Uh, she, he goes on to say she is far more precious than jewels. Think about jewels. They're not just lying on the ground. They have to be mined for, right? You have to, like, scrape away the dirt and, um, and, and find the value. You have to look really hard. It takes effort. You have to search for them. Rich called my attention to a great Luther quote that I'd never heard before. Luther said, uh, to sum, sum the matter up, whoever finds himself unsuited to the celibate life should see to it right away that he has something to do and to work at it. Then let him strike out in God's name and get married. Strike out. Go get it. Right? If you find yourself not called to the celibate life. I got, became a Christian in the charismatic background. And um, they would always guilt you up front to pray for you. If anyone wants more of God, come up front. Now, if you stay seated, what does that mean? I mean I, I've had my fill, man. <laughs> you know, uh, so you come up and then they got uh, you know, some weird people to pray for you. And, uh, you know, and, you know, talk in tongues, like, I want a new Honda, this sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, I remember this one woman, though, she was, uh, I have a word from the Lord for you. And at that point, I was like, I'm about done with these people. You know, I'm like 18, I'm starting to read the Bible, uh, starting to know a little bit of something. But I, this is what I knew. I knew I had to get out of this church. She was like, uh, God is calling you to a life of singleness and celibacy. I was like, no, no, this is, uh, <laughs> no. That is uh, not my path. That is not God. Um, that is the devil. <laughs> so uh, I like women, and I'm going to go get me one. So, <laughs> so strike out. You got to go search for, for the, the, the godly, high-value wife. Third, if it's good to find a quality wife, it's good to be found by a quality husband, right? You know, the girls, guys are saying, why can't I find a good girl? And the girls are saying, why are all these weirdos the only ones talking to me? Why can't I be found by, like, one normal guy? Um, one guy that doesn't bring up the Lord of the Rings in the first couple moments, okay? <laughs> Save it for the second date, okay? Like, seriously. Um, a quality gem-like spouse is, unless you want to talk about how woke and terrible the, power, the rings of power is. That's allowed in a first date. Just, uh, anyway. Um, 
A quality gem-like spouse is difficult to find, and then there is a level of searching involved. Where do you look for gems? Where do you not look? How do you identify them? How do you then extract them? Uh, the answers to those questions are a mix of timeless truth, but also time-bound uh, by particular circumstances. And we live in a particular age. Uh, a lot of counsel doesn't factor in the change that, have occur that has occurred in our culture. I was talking to a pretty well-known pastor several years ago, and I told him I was working on this project, which became It's Good to Be a Man. And he uh, was like, well, you got to help these young men in uh, my church. Uh, there's this really great Christian waitress. She, she serves me breakfast at this diner, and I brought these two guys along because uh, I wanted them to meet her and talk to her and ask her out. And anytime she would come there, uh, the guys would just put their heads down and were you know, awkward and wouldn't, wouldn't say anything. And I was just like, I'm done with these guys, right? I'm done with them. And the way he interpreted that was that these guys lacked ambition and desire for a spouse. You know, they're not going to put themselves out there. He didn't think for a moment, maybe they just don't know how to talk to women. Maybe, they're, maybe they really are deeply insecure. They, uh, and what's happened, the things that's been washed away, a lot of it's kind of what Aaron Renz, call, he calls folk, I think it's Aaron, or is it Rich? I don't know who said this, but folk wisdom. Uh, things that, you know, how to, you know, stand up straight, put your shoulders back, that line from Jordan Peterson. You know, the, one way to not get bullied in school is to make eye contact. Eye contact's scary. <laughs> It's just, you know, stand up, don't slouch over, that, that's, that shows weakness. And so when I was, um, was a youth pastor, I always teach kids simple things like that. But how to carry yourself, a lot of those things have just gone away. And they didn't know that that was part of the landscape. It was built into the culture. There still was some normal masculinity, some normal femininity, some good traditions left in America. But each one of these waves brought things out with them. And, and it's changed things. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the advice I hear, even the advice I was giving some years ago, um, I slowly realized that it just was different. Like they were in a different time, because at first I thought these guys were all a bunch of slackers and had excuses. But as I got to know them, that's not, it wasn't their character at all. And I recognized that I was working under a different set of assumptions that didn't, uh, you know, didn't comport with reality anymore. So, tsunamis have changed the landscape, and what I want to give you tonight is just three major challenges that you have to navigate in a mindset that I think will help you do it. Uh, my goal isn't GPS step-by-step -step instructions. That's what everyone wants, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, um, because you imagine it'll, it'll deliver you there safe, safely, but there's nothing safe about marriage. There's nothing safe about dating. There's nothing safe, okay? I saw a Chinese uh, uh, translation of a sign that was supposed to say, um, uh, communicate something about danger, and it mistranslated. It said, uh, uh, safety is dangerous. Oh, no, it said, beware of safety, right? <laughs> I love that. Beware of safety, right? It's like, there's nothing safe in this world. It's a spiritual battle, right? And you, you, can't, you can't get away from it. You have to face it down. So my goal is just to give you a topographical map, help you see kind of the lay of the land, and a compass to help you navigate it. So let's get right at it. So challenge number one you must navigate is the twin dangers of undue delaying of marriage and rushed marriage. Now, singleness is not only not bad, 
but it has a good and necessary purpose in everyone's life. Everyone is single for a portion of their life. By single, I simply mean never married, like not married up to that point. Um, We all start single. Just as you crawl before you walk or run, you must mature relationally as a single person before entering into marriage. And marriage is absolutely a normative part of life. Marriage is God's design for man and woman, and it has been from the very beginning. God gave a creation mandate to mankind, and at the core of it was a command uh, to be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just a biological imperative, but it's a liturgical reality. Man was to fill the world with the image of God. Uh, And by and large, they did that by raising up covenant children who bear the image of God and serve and worship him through their life. That's that's what the creation mandate's really about. It's about filling the earth with worship. Marriage, while a gift to both individual spouses, always had a greater purpose, namely to establish biblical households from which all institutions in society would spring forth. It's a big job, and it's not a one-person job. And that's exactly why it's not good that the man be alone. It's not romantic, right? That's not what it's talking about. Not merely because he would be lonely, but because he would be alone in his work. And that's a work that requires not just more hands, but it requires both men and women, male and female, masculine and feminine, right? It's it's a two-sex work. This aspect of the creation mandate is restated to Noah, right, after the fall and after the flood. So it's an enduring part of God's plan, even for right now. Some people seem to think that the Great Commission replaces it. But no one can be born again who hasn't been born, right? I mean, it seems these points that we have to make, you just have to, like, break everything down so simple. Um, someone was telling me that they didn't think it was necessary that people had kids, um, that you can, have, you can have spiritual children. Well, the spiritual children you have, they were born, right? Someone had kids. You understand? For the Great Commission to even work, the creation mandate has to be happening. They work together. Um, So that aspect of the creation mandate is still out there to make disciples and partially how we make disciples and make them babies, which is a good thing. Uh, It's also telling them the requirements for church officers that marriage and children are assumed as part of the norm of life. I don't personally think that you're, that's limiting only married people and only people with children. But it it is stating what is normal and what that sort of man should be like. He should be a one-woman man, and his children should walk in the faith after him, right? Uh, So it's assuming that's a normal part of a man's life. And yes, it's true that some have a gift of celibacy, which allows them to stay focused on parts of God's mission without being distracted by their normal sexual desires. And according to Matthew 19, that gift is only given to some, and the experience of testimony, or the experience of history uh, excuse me, our experience in the testimony of history tells us that's very few. There's not very many people that have that gift. There's nothing normal at all about prolonged singleness, and yet it is absolutely becoming common. There's a trend towards delaying marriage uh, much later in life. For comparison, just to give you kind of an idea of where this goes back to, uh, back in 1900, Women got married at 20, I'm just going to give you the 0.9 with this, okay? 21.9 years of age. 
men, 25.9. Then 50 years up, it drops down to 20.3 in women and 22.8 in men. Why did that happen? The war, right? World War II. A lot of times when you hear people talk about marrying ages, they normalize World War II as if like, that's what it's been like all, all the time. It, it is a real odd demographic um, situation there. Then in uh, 1975, it, it jumps up to women being 21.1, men being 23.5. And then 2000, uh, women getting married at 25.1, men at 26.8. 2013 keeps creeping up. Women now are uh, 26 and a half, men 29 flat. The newest data that I actually found um, just a few days ago is a 2021 stat, having women getting married at 26 uh, years of age and men, the average uh, age of marriage being 30 and a half, right? That's quite a jump in the century. Um, overall, marriage rates have also significantly declined in the last 70 years. In 1960, only about one in 10 adults, 9%, in that age range of uh, 25 and older had never been married. So only 9% of people. Uh, in 2012, it's one in five adults. So it's, it's twice as common now. So that's about 42 million people. And uh, so in a nutshell, fewer people are getting married and those who are getting married do so much later in life. But that doesn't mean people are living a sexually chaste life. This is the problem I have with the Gospel Coalition, singleness is a blessing crowd, right? Go to Gospel Coalition and stick in singleness and see how many articles they've written on singleness and then see how many articles they've written on the gift and blessing of marriage and the gift and blessing of children. And you'll see exactly where their bias is. And um, so singleness is great when it's paired with uh, the ability to remain chaste, right? Uh, but that's not, that's not what's happening. The use of pornography is widespread. I had to teach our youth group on this a couple weeks ago, and it's from 12 and up. And I almost sent an email out to the parents to let them know I was talking about it because I just didn't want to blindside them. But I just decided this is too common at this point. Like, I don't know, what are we, these kids, these 12-year-olds, I don't care if they go to public school or not. Do they get out to non-Christian friends or weak Christian friends that have iPhones, right? Like, you can't avoid this stuff. You have to, you have to start preparing your kids younger because it's everywhere. I mean, 12% of all internet websites are pornographic. 25% of all online search engine requests are related to sex. It's about 68 million requests per day. 35% of all internet downloads are pornographic. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. And that's, they're saying that, right? They admit that openly. 70% of men aged 18 to 24 visit a porn site at least once a month. The average age of first exposure to the internet pornography is 11. I think that is closer to nine right now. The largest consum uh, consumer group of internet pornography is men's 35 to 49. Those are guys giving up, I think, is what's going on there. But here's a surprise to a lot of people. One-third of all Internet porn users are female, and that's been something we've had to think about counseling because it's, uh, it's very different uh, how women interact with pornography and men, and uh, there's just not a lot of uh, good, helpful pastoral you know, thoughts on that. Uh, but that's, that's what, where we're at. It's that common. Here's a nutty one. Check this out. By 2010, only 5% of new brides were virgins when they got married. 
at the other end of the distribution, the number of future wives who had 10 or more sexual partners increased by 2% in 1970, so thankfully not common at all, to 14% in, uh, in the 2000s and then to 18% in the 2010s. We don't have, I don't have any data. Um, this, so that's, just, that's 12 years ago. That's before OnlyFans, that's before TikTok, that's before a lot of things. So the trends uh, are discouraging. And you might think, well, that's the world. It is the world, um, but it is seeping into the church. It's just that powerful. I've been watching incredible numbers of, of homeschoolers, probably 18 to 25 in that neck of the woods, just get swallowed up into the world and go apostate. And, and people say, well, their, their parents probably didn't catechize them. I know their parents. Their parents did catechize them. Well, they didn't go to a good Reformed church. They went to a better church than I did. Uh, it was actually really good. Well, I don't think they spent time. No, that's not true. I think partially what happened with that kind of age group, because I'm watching a lot of parents in their 50s and 60s, uh, they're just heartbroken over apostates, right? It's one of the hardest things to experience. It's like a living dead person. Right? It's like living death by it. It's very difficult. Um, but I think we raised children up. They were raising children up in a time where to be a Christian was kind of neutral. It wasn't a negative like it is now. And then just as those kids came to age, the last five, or five to seven years, it's been incredibly aggressive. Then they went, and this, this culture, it's like a raging river, but it doesn't look like it. And they stepped out into it, and they got washed away. Right? They just got washed away. And we're... And, we're adjusting, we know that now, but um, it's seeped into everywhere. And it's not the same intensity, thank God, but it is even in our circles. And uh, I talk to other pastors for counsel in my church and vice versa, and I see it out there. Uh, sex is a fire. It is. Proverbs 6 asks, can a man carry fire next to his chest and clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touch her will go unpunished. So sex like fire is dangerous when it's not contained. Fire in a fireplace safely provides heat and light for a household. But if it gets out, it'll burn the entire house down and everyone in it. Sex is meant to be contained in the covenant of marriage. I like the analogy of, of a combustion engine. I like the idea of like how sex is something in, in God's... Um, economy used for productive things. But when it gets out, it wrecks, it wrecks, it creates disaster everywhere. And so a lot of us think, well, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, right? Paul tells us, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And it's true, especially if you understand the, the exact context. Um, it's not saying you don't have to have self-discipline. That'd be a really bad interpretation. Um, but that's one of the reasons that verse is why the Westminster Larger Catechism says the undue delaying of marriage can be a sin, or is a sin, when it's undue, when you don't have a good reason for it. But delaying marriage doesn't mean we should rush marriage. That is an equal concern. There's a myth that marrying in your teens was normal prior to the last century. I don't know if it's because people watch Little House on the Prairie and they think it's like a documentary. It's a TV show, okay? Um, and if you're trying to get married, ladies, don't dress that way. Um, but... It's, it's a myth. Uh, here's a few stats. So back in the 1700s, women were getting married. This is England, 25 to 26, men 30. 
New England in the early 1600s, women were in their teens, but the men still right around 26. New England in the late 1600s, women at 20, men at 25. Then with the Quakers in the 1600s, women were 22, men 26. Um, same group, 1700, moved up a year in the women, 23, still 26 in the men. And then in rural South Carolina in the 1700s, women 19, men 22. Uh, marrying age is pretty elastic. I, I've got some stats that I'm trying to figure out if they're true or not, but it does look like this kind of played out the same way in the ancient world as well. Uh, but it's generally tied to economic factors and societal stability when we're looking at uh, big trends. And as far as I can tell, going back centuries, women tend to get married in very late teens to the early 20s. Men tend to get married in their mid to late 20s. That's usually when it happens. So first off, I have met some people that are discouraged they're not married yet. I'm like, how old are you? They're like, I'm 21. They're like, all right, chill. It's okay. Stop, stop psyching yourself out. <laughs> There's still time, okay? You're still within the historical norm. Uh, it's going to be okay. Uh, you might say, well, that's not, that's not the Bible, though, right? Right, because we have to have a verse to prove everything, like the verse that proves, like, what type of fuel burns better. Um, but uh, you sure? Like, I don't think the Bible's going to help you on this one. Go look up and see how old the patriarchs when they're getting married. And I'm not talking about, like, Methuselah, right? Isaac was 40. Uh, but I thought everyone gets married 18. Um, no. Uh, very young marriage is not the norm that people imagine. I'm not anti-young marriage. What I'm anti is rushed marriage. Uh, J.C. Ryle warned, it is not only too true that thoughtlessly entering into marriage is one of the most fertile causes of unhappiness, and too often it may be feared of sin. What I am worried about is us reacting against the undue delaying of marriage that's everywhere, um, and then falling into another era where we're having people that are just not prepared for marriage yet. And then people say, well, what's, what's the perfect standard unprepared? I don't know. Like, I don't have this all figured out. But come on, you do have to have, know a few things before you get married. Generally, in my household, this is what I told my son, and do what you want with this, okay? I told him, you want to be able to, when you see the girl that you want to marry, you want to be able to snatch her up within a year. And if you get married to her, I want you to be prepared to take care of a baby within a year, right? So what does it take to uh, build, have a household and provide for a baby more or less in two years from meeting the girl that you want. That's the standard in our house, but that's just me being pragmatic. The thing is, you still have to, people have to be prepared. And getting married before you possess the basic marks of maturity is the pathway to a miserable marriage and potentially divorce. It's a real concern. Men and women, they, they mature at different rates. They, you know, uh, how many of you guys went to public school? How many of you guys went to school where there was dances? Middle school dances, right? Middle, middle school dances are hilarious, right? Because the chicks look like giraffes, right? They're super tall, and then there's like some little guy holding her waist as they dance back and forth, right? And they're the exact same age, but she's, she's huge. And then, you know, within a couple years, it's like, whoop, the guy catches up. But um, what's going on there physically tends to kind of track to um, emotionally in terms of responsibility. Guys, they, they peak much later than women do. They, they, they have to stay a little longer in the stove in many cases. And uh, I would not want to see someone rushed out too much. What, what we want to do is commend marriage. 
Marriage is good. Get prepared for it. But let's not stick a number on it. I think that would be a, a major mistake. Scripture doesn't. And, um, and truth is, like, you need to be able to control your lust. When you get married, you think that just goes away? It doesn't go away. It's a help. Marriage is a great help. Uh, but you have to develop some discipline. So that's not going to, like, save you from all the mess in the world. You have to fear God. Challenge number two. You must navigate uh, the, oh, I had this one. I wanted to read this one. Yes, some get married way before they are ready and make it. That's what one calls an exception to a rule. For example, getting shot in the head isn't always fatal, but it's to be discouraged. <laughs> I like that line. So it's better when it flows naturally, but didn't work out. So there it is. Um, Challenge number two, you must navigate the twin dangers of having no standards at all and a rigid idealism, okay? I think dating apps and porn has fetishized the things we find desirable. We're granular in our wants, desires, and standards for a spouse. We're an on-demand culture, right? So when I was a kid, if you missed a show, you had to wait till summer when the rerun reruns came out. That was too bad, man. There was no TiVo. There was... I mean, if it was a movie, too, it's funny. Movies, if you missed it in the movie theater, it could be like six, nine months, uh, forever before it came out. But now we can get whatever we want, and I'm so impatient with everything. You know, like I was on the, uh, trying to do some work on a plane, and the Internet took like a full two seconds to load up. I'm like, what's going on? I paid $10 on this plane for this Internet. It should be like that, you know. Uh, we want everything right now, and we're, and we're used to having everything built to our desires. We've allowed ourselves to, to be trained by, uh, to train to filter for very specific variables, right? Women, the, the woman I want to marry, she's got to be a redhead. You know how few redheads there are, right? Not very many, right? They're little freaks of nature, I know. <laughs> but so cute, I married one. Um, he must be over six, six foot tall. Short guys, you've heard this one. Right? You've heard this. Uh, she must be no older than 24. Um, I've had conversations with guys who are like in their 30s and they're like, I'll only date a girl if she's under 22. And I was like, you should not visit my church. <laughs> do you have pretty church? Uh, pretty, I've had these guys ask, do you have any pretty girls at your church? Man, they're all dogs. They are the ugliest women you ever see. And they're not. They're beautiful. Just don't come here. That's weird, man. Marry someone your age. I'm saying there, there are some exceptions. Like when John Knox married a 17-year-old when he's in his 50s. But Calvin was not happy about that. Right. He was not happy about that at all. Um, he must make over six figures. Sure, sure. Each variable exponentially shrinks your pools of options. Or your pool of options. It doesn't take too many of these variables to empty the pool completely. You can have your desires and standards, but maybe a 27-year-old brunette who loves the Lord would be a great wife for you. Maybe a 5'10 junior salesman making 40 or 50K would be a wonderful husband, father, and grown to the provider you hope for him. Many are too particular to even explore the possibility. I have told people to their face on many occasions, if you don't change, you will die alone, right? You will die without ever getting married. This is your, you're the problem. I just want to be clear, you're the problem. 
Now, I'm not saying that's the case with all of you, but I have known people that are so particular. I'm like, where does this person exist? In here, not out there. In your imagination, you've, you've constructed them. And things like dating apps. Dating apps are really bad for women in particular because dating apps skew towards men. There's more men on there than there are women. And so they give the idea of there's all these options, all these fish in the sea. But a lot of those guys aren't interested in you. And it, make, it gives you the sense that, you, like, I can wait. I'm going to find someone. I can always hold out for the next best thing. Um, and it's, it's, it's largely an illusion, especially for a high-performing woman, right? Women generally, I'll talk about this tomorrow, but women generally want to marry, uh, be married to someone that makes more money than them, right? So if you're making $100,000, like, who's the guy on there that makes more than you that's also tall and handsome and has the character and is keen on you? I mean, maybe. So... Be flexible. Here's what I would say. Here's uh, where I would start. Ladies, at least consider him if he's a God-fearing, church-attending, masculine man who you respect. At least consider him. Give it a thought. Give it a try. Fellas, at least consider her if she's a God-fearing, church-attending, feminine woman. Just start there. Challenge number three. Navigate the twin dangers of Gnostic Christianity and man as a biological machine. So biblical anthropology always keeps body and spirit together. Werner Neuer has a good book, and he he calls man a spirit-body composite. And so in doing this, it it, uh, attacks two prevalent anthropological errors that we see throughout history. The first is man as a body-trapped spirit. This is where our human nature is divorced from our biological nature, and I'd argue that this is an assumption that runs deep in modern Christianity and has contributed more than anything to the current sexual chaos. Um, This is the modern version of of the Greeks, think the Gnostics. Uh, It basically sees matter, physicality, as intrinsically evil or somehow lesser than, you know, the spirit, right? Uh, And then there's man as a biological machine. This is where our human nature is reduced to our biological nature, to our appetites and impulses. Basically, man is just a machine programmed by evolution to have certain desires. It only follows, then, that there is nothing wrong with embracing our natural inclinations. So that error doesn't uh, deny the body, but the spirit. Uh, All man is, is a body. It's not corrupted. Freedom in this system is surrendering to your nature. Therefore, if it feels good, uh, if it serves your desire, then do it. That's the modern version, more or less, of the Sadducees. But both are wrong. Both are an attack on biblical anthropology, and both must be rejected. And both are everywhere. A lot of these, um, so basically the evangelicals uh, have no good theology of, of the body. They have no theology of sex. And to care, like, if you, if you care about a woman, if you're attracted to her because she's pretty, uh, they'll deride, deride you, right? They'll act like that's wrong. Well, what's her personality like? I'll find out. So, so if she's pretty, right? And, and if, a, and if a, a girl is interested in a guy because he's successful or has status, she's looked down on too. Uh, but that's, that's Gnosticism. That's thinking that there's something wrong with the physical world, with beauty, with strength, with demonstrated power in, in, the, in ability and skill. Um, 
but so a lot of times when you're in churches that are like that, you don't get any good advice on how to be a man or woman practically or, or how to live out your sex. Um, so where do you turn? Well, that's how a lot of these guys get sucked in to these non-Christian pagan influences online, on YouTube in particular. And those guys, everything for them is always arguments from evolutionary biology. Oh, every, every time that's all you hear them. And they're always talking about dopamine and hormones and this as like you're just a, a machine made of meat, okay? And, and all your bubbling desires control you. And a lot of that stuff gets into people's heads. And they don't, they don't actually care about virtue. They don't actually care about um, the sp- spiritual good of someone. And we should care both about the spirit and the physical. Like we have a running joke I don't know if I should admit this on camera, but it's happening. Um, but we had a, a, a running joke growing up. If a girl wasn't attractive, we would tell you that she had a great personality. Like, what's she look like? Man, she's got a great personality. What does she look like? She's got the most amazing personality I've ever met, man. Like, you're going to love her personality. And that was a way, uh, because we always heard people say you should love people just for their personality. What? You shouldn't love my body? My body's not part of me? I'm just, what, a spirit? I'm just something in the ether? I mean, that's a crazy thought. That's not a biblical way of thinking. Now, should you respect people for who they are in Christ, for their character, for their virtue? Absolutely. But why are we, why are we pulling apart what God has joined together, right? You should care. Ladies, it's okay to want to marry a physically fit man. Right, guys? Like, we, it's... Not being fat is, is kind of nice for lots of reasons, but your wife likes it. Um, a man who can bring home the bacon and command the respect of others, including you. It's okay for, to want that. Men, it's okay to want to marry an attractive woman who can cook the bacon that you brought home and follows your lead, okay? It's okay. Those are not bad things. But you do want to make sure that we um, keep, the, keep everything together here. Calvin, Calvin could be a little super spiritual. Actually, I don't disagree with him on, on almost anything, but I do think he has a negative attitude towards the body. He does quote, uh, he does refer to his body as like a prison a couple times, uh, but that's, he was very ill. He had significant health problems, chronic health problems, and I think that's where that comes from, but he does have a little bit of that super spiritual side to him at times, I think, but he says, Uh, I do not belong to that foolish group of lovers who are willing to cover even the shortcomings of a woman with kisses as soon as they have fallen for her external appearance. So I'm not just going to look over all her flaws just because she's hot. Um, And then he goes on, the only beauty that charms me is that she is virtuous, obedient, not arrogant, thrifty, patient, and that I can expect her to care for my health. Calvin's not saying that beauty doesn't matter here. He's saying that, yeah, beauty's a thing, um, but he's emphasizing the importance of her character and ability. He does care about her ability to actually help him. He's looking for a competent woman, right? An able spouse is a great blessing. And he did not get married till he was 31. And he, he was getting ready to give up. And this woman he ended up uh, marrying, she was a, spouse, or a widow who was a couple years older than him. And they, they got married. And, uh, and she died nine years later, right? He never thought he'd find, find a wife. 
and then he finds this woman, and uh, Boozer was really pushing, pushing her, and they get married. And after her death, he wrote to a friend, I do what I can that I may not be altogether consumed with grief. I've been bereaved of the best companion of my life. Every time I read that, I think about my wife. I, just, I know that day's coming, right? It's like life is vapor. It, it makes me emotional. I've been bereaved of the best companion of my life. She was the faithful helper of my ministry. My friends leave nothing undone to lighten, in some degree, the sorrow of my soul. May the Lord Jesus confirm you by his spirit and me also under this great affliction, which certainly would have crushed me had not uh, he whose office it is to raise up the prostrate, to strengthen the weak, and to revive the faint and extend help to me from heaven. To find a good wife, only to lose her a few years later. What a pain. It's a pain that C.S. Lewis had. What's the stain, Calvin? a heavenly mindset. And that's the mindset you need to navigate these difficult times. An eternal perspective on life and marriage. Marriage and children are a blessing. I am dying to get back home. I bought a bunch of expensive stuffed animals to prove that I thought about them <laughs> at the Kalahari Resorts. It says so on the side of the animals. <laughs> um, I can't wait to get back to them. It almost hurts to talk to them on the phone, right? I just, it's easier not to see them right now. They're a great blessing. But they mustn't be what defines us. Uh, remember, Jesus said, unless you hate father and mother, you cannot follow me. Your ultimate devotion, your ultimate telos has to be the worship of God. What is the chief end of man? Right? To glorify him and enjoy him forever. That has to be it. Like, I love being married, but I love Jesus more. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And we're all going to experience the ultimate glory and purpose of marriage in the world to come. We're all going to get that. And that internal mindset, if you have that, it will replace that ugly, desperate, anxious neediness with an attractive, joyful, peaceful swagger. That's what you need. Marriage will not complete you. It's a great blessing. It's Christ that completes us. When we know that, that gives us the strength to face down these days in faith and see it as an opportunity to glorify and enjoy God on our way to home, on our way to that marriage supper of the Lamb. So search knowing that the thing you want most is secure in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to drag us out of the darkness into the life, that you will finish the work that you started in us and that you do have good things for us, things in this life even. The, Lord, I pray for those here that uh, desperately, uh, out of a desire to honor you, want to build a godly household, that you would bless them with spouses. But in between now and then, Lord, that they would uh, keep the main thing the main thing, Lord, and that you would be the center of their life, and that would give them peace. And when they come to this topic, it wouldn't be a source of pain or anxiety, but of confidence. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.